Thank you, Joy and Lisa. So we are going to dismiss children for Children's Church. That's ages four through first grade. And you can head out this north door and follow Mr. Alderman. As the kids are making their way out, I'm going to pick up all these celebratory streamers so that I don't step on them. It's kind of fun to be here in the front row. And I was watching Noah Munson here kind of walk through. And, you know, as a fifth grade boy, you're kind of going, I'm not quite into this. But as he came around the corner, you know, Caroline Hill was waving her, her palm branch and got up in his nose and he's, he started smiling. So it was, a, it was a good moment. It was a good moment. So uh, in the 1970s, a town in Texas called Cactus, Texas, they have a meat packing plant there. And they were having a hard time just getting workers there because it's rigorous work. They were, you know, killing, butchering cattle and getting their, you know, the meat packed there. And so they're having a hard time getting American workers there. And so they put the word out even overseas. And you know, immigrants from Southeast Asia came and did the job quite handily. They didn't have a problem transitioning to the work, but for some from Southeast Asia, in their particular country, they were having a hard time accommodating American life, just you know, modern American living, especially in the area of, of just housing and cooking. It seems that one group, well, they had electric, you know, or gas stoves in their, in their kitchen, but they were pulling up the rug in the middle of their, of their living room, and it was a concrete floor, and they were cooking on the floor, because that's just how they were used to in the old country. That's how they used to do it, and it was causing a little consternation with the landlords. Now, I, I say this not to paint them as backwards or to, you know, disparage this group. I just, I'm just using this as an example to say that we as human beings are creatures of habit, are we not? And sometimes when an opportunity to change is put before us, we have a hard time adjusting. We like to kind of go about things the way we've learned or how we're, we've learned to think about things. And it can be very challenging. See, sometimes when something new comes along and demands a different response, action or attitude, we have a hard time making that change. We're going to see that in Scripture today. Jesus, the God-man, has come. And He brings something better than just modern kitchen appliances. No, He has come to bring the kingdom of God, setting men and women free. Not from just disease, but from sin. From being alienated from a holy God. But there were some who believed that they had this God thing wired and figured out. And Jesus was doing things differently than they expected. And they're having a hard time understanding that maybe they were the ones that needed to adjust adjust to what God was doing in Christ. And if they didn't change, well, then they just might miss it. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 5 today and find out what, uh, what these folks were struggling with. So Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You are our, the King who has come, and you are our coming King. Would you give us ears now to hear what you have to say through your word, eyes to see, 
Open the eyes of our hearts, we pray. And I pray you'll give us grace to respond to you in spirit and in truth and rejoice in who you are. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to pick it up at verse 33 of the chapter through the end to verse 39. This is a group called the Pharisees who are talking to Jesus. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? The time, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch up an old one. Otherwise they'll have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new. For they say the old is better. We've been in this study through the Gospel of Luke. And last week we were looking earlier that Jesus has caught the attention of the Pharisees and the scribes, people who were the religious experts of the time. He's captured not only just in his own region, but from other regions. Now these people were very religious. They were committed to the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, many of them have been memorized. Now that may seem like a daunting thing to you, but you know what, when you eliminate the television and the computer, you'll be amazed at what you could do. But here's the thing. They were very zealous to live it out. They had commentary and instructions on how to live this out. They had what's called the oral tradition, basically kind of rules for how to do this. There's another uh, document called the Talmud or the Mishnah. These are rules and how to keep the rules. Example, a woman ought not look into a mirror on the Sabbath lest she be tempted and see a gray hair and pull it out and do work on the Sabbath. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Those are the rules to keep the rules. These people were good at being good. Unfortunately, it morphed into self-righteousness, into self-salvation. And they were there to check out Jesus to do a little quality control. To make sure this new rabbi, this young untrained rabbi, does things in accordance with their approval. But if you were here last week, we see that Jesus has kind of already crossed some lines. Claiming to have the authority to forgive sins. Saying the Son of Man has been given the authority to forgive sins. And it would be easier to find fault with them if he didn't actually heal the paralytic who he said who his sins were forgiven. And they were all there to see it. They see that the power of God is in this man. But even worse, they were complaining that Jesus was hanging out with the wrong people. You see, it's bad enough that Jesus called a, a tax collector a traitor named Levi to become one of his disciples. But then afterward, he goes and hangs out with his friends. I mean, these are the people that were 
not following the rules. They weren't following God, but they were far from God. And Jesus was sharing about how God had come to draw them back to himself. And in their complaining, their grumbling, Jesus responds this way. He says in verse 31, look, I'm on a mission to set people free. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Unfortunately, rather than rejoicing in Jesus' redemptive mission, they just use this as more reason to criticize and try and find fault with Jesus. And what we look at today is what I call Grumblefest Part 2. Because they were grumbling against what Jesus was doing. So he's, you know, again, they come to him. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. So do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Now fasting is, most of you know, but I just want to make sure everybody's on the same page. It's going without food or drink for a, a period of time. That could be you know, a few hours, that could be all day, that could be a number of days. But the issue seemed to be that, you know, that, that not that Jesus' disciples weren't praying, but they weren't fasting and praying. See, praying was a part of a Jew's daily routine. There's only one part of the Old Testament law that commands a Jew to fast, and that is on the day of Yom Kippur. On the day of atonement, when you are thoughtful and remorseful for your sins. That is the one day where the high priest would go in and take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, on the ark. But that's the only time in the law where fasting was required. The rest of the time it was just perhaps in relationship to God. In fact, it was a practice during times when there was a national crisis, say a war, or even just a time of repentance of we need to come back to the Lord. We need to have a right heart attitude towards God. And we're going to display that by fasting. It was also something that was maybe used for a personal vow for God. And I'm, going to, I'm going to serve God this way and so I'm going to fast for a certain amount of time before I do this, what have you. Sometimes it could be used for a wrong purpose. If we look in the book of Acts, there's a group of Jews who didn't like the Apostle Paul, and they said, we're going to fast until we kill the guy. Eh, probably not what God intended for that. John's disciples, they did fast. That was kind of part of their regular practice. But they were fasting because they were looking to prepare for the way of the Lord. God was going to send his Messiah. John saying, look, it's coming. It's coming soon. Repent. Take some time and be prepared for God's Messiah when he shows up. That was their heart. And the Pharisees themselves, they had a practice. They had a practice of, of fasting every Monday and every Thursday. An example of that would be Luke 18, 12. And it started out as a healthy practice of, of devotion to God. It's like, I just want to be mindful of God on these days especially. But it slowly morphed into a posturing of expression of self-spirituality and personal piety for others to see. I want others to see how devoted I am to God. The uh, Pharisees called it the affliction of the soul. 
And so they'd get themselves all disheveled, have a pain look on their face. Oh, I'm fasting. I'm so devoted to the Almighty. Let me tell you. And Jesus said, when you fast, don't do this. Matthew 6, 16 through 17. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces. They show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. If you're going to fast, this is between you and God, not everybody else. But the message was clear to Jesus, what these experts were trying to say. If you were really God's man, if you were really the Messiah, you'd be training your disciples in righteousness, and they'd be doing what we do, the Pharisees do, or, yeah, John and his disciples. But you'd, you'd be you know, showing people how miserable you are in your fasting. See, all this eating and drinking and the celebratory stuff, Jesus, you're doing, that's not right. To be godly is to be miserable. To be godly is to be miserable. And Jesus has to point them to what is really going on in his own presence here. And so in verse 34 he says, Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And in those days, they will fast. Throughout the Old Testament, the image or the the portrayed relationship between God and his people is that of a husband with his wife. I'd love to commend to you Psalm 45. Don't turn there right now. But maybe read it a little bit later today and you'll you'll look in there and you'll see the imagery of this mighty king who is the most excellent of men, who is actually God himself, who has a throne forever. And he is calling a bride to himself. A bride is there to forget her people and find her identity in the king. It's a beautiful picture. Read it sometime. But it's there. But here's the point. Jesus is saying, guys, God has sent his Messiah and his his king, his bridegroom, and he's come to take his people back. And by the way, you're looking at him right now. You're looking at him right now. And this is why there's a connection also with Palm Sunday and what's happening here in this passage, right? Jesus shows up as the king, but a lot of the spiritual experts don't recognize him as the king. And they're missing him as the bridegroom. But the bridegroom is here, and the time is not for fasting and mourning, but rather rejoicing. Rejoicing in what God is doing. So there is a call for what I call a right response to the bridegroom. A right response to the bridegroom. You know, this Tuesday, I will have been married to Carrie Brand, Carrie Cease Brand, for 19 years. Woohoo! And I'll tell you what, I'd do it all over again. And I'm not just saying that. I'm not just saying that. But think about that day, 19 years ago. If I came up and, you know, the pastor said, 
Nathan Anders Brand, you take Carrie Cease to be your lawfully wedded wife, you know, and all the other things that go, you know, better for worse and all that stuff. And I said, well, wait a minute. There's going to be a moment where it gets worse? What? No, this is not the time for kind of sober reflection. It's a time to rejoice. It's a time to respond and say, yes, this woman is becoming my wife. She's becoming my family. She is my life partner, and I can rejoice in this. That is the right response. And we got married. We had a reception, and we danced. There's more dancing my wife ever done before and ever after. She's Mennonite, I'm not. But the response is this. We were rejoicing in what God had done in our lives. And that is the right response. That's the right response here. God is inaugurating his plan to bring people to himself, sinful men and women, as a bridegroom is wooing his bride. And it's something to rejoice in. And his disciples... As the friend of the bridegroom, maybe they didn't fully understand what God was doing, but they knew. They knew that God was doing something amazing, something special in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And yes, there will be a time in the storyline where the bridegroom will be taken away, and it will be a time for fasting. It's Jesus pointing to the fact that he will die he will be raised from the dead, and he will return to heaven. But the bridegroom has come. He's come to invite people to become his bride and to be restored to the living God. But religious experts, you're dangerously close to missing it. You're dangerously close to missing what God is doing. What a tragedy. Because you are being stubbornly stuck to the old ways. Stubbornly stuck to the old ways. Verse 36. And he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch the old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment and patched, and the patch from the old from the new will not match the old. And no one pours out new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. They, for they say, the old is better. Jesus had this amazing ability to know what was going on in a man or woman's heart and mind. To... His rivals, that was kind of irritating, actually. But he knew it. And by the way, as you're praying, don't try and tell God what, he, what you think he wants to hear. Because he knows everything that's going on. Be honest. Be transparent before him. But he shares with them these two parables to show the Pharisees that what is going on in their own hearts their own minds. And the first is, is a parable of a piece of material. It's taken from a new garment and put on an old garment that needs to be repaired. couple problems with that. Number one, you just ruin the new garment by pulling a piece off of it, right? 
And then you try and put that new piece on the old garment, you wash it, and it shrinks, and it rips. And the problem is worse than that. And not only that, it doesn't match. Have you ever tried to put a patch on a garment and, and, and make it look like it's not there anymore? Usually doesn't work, right? Even with jeans. I mean, denim. You think, how hard is that? But it shows, doesn't it? No, that doesn't work. And then this, this issue, this uh, parable of new wine placed in old wineskins. The wineskins were made of goat or, or lamb, right? And if you were going to take new wine and pull it, pull it into old wineskins, well that, you know, over time leather gets old, crusty, dry, doesn't it, right? And you pour that new wine in there and it starts to ferment, expand a little bit, and all of a sudden it just breaks through that brittle wineskin. That's what's going on. And there's a double loss. You burst the wineskin and you've lost the wine itself. New wine needs new wineskins that can stretch and expand with the new wine. So here's the spiritual application, at least for these Pharisees. The Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, it can't be retrofit to accommodate the new covenant. The gospel. And that is what Jesus is bringing. Let me give you kind of a modern day example. I do not know how I got through college as far as like writing and typing papers. I don't. I really, I mean, I kind of look back and say, how did I do that? And I, I hired out someone to be typed, and, but some, you know, an old typewriter. But I didn't even own a computer with a word processor, t- processor till like, you know, early 90s when I was in seminary. I don't know how I did that. But here's what I do remember. A few papers I did on a roommate's, he had a brother... 700 word processor. Can I get a witness? All right? Look at that thing. And so you could maybe put like one sentence on that, that green LED screen when you're trying to type a paper. And everything was saved on a floppy disk. You see the drive down there to the, the bottom right. Right? And, I'm, and you, you have no idea what's up above or below. I mean, it's you're like you're just typing by faith, you know. That, and then when you finally print it out, it's kind of like, Oh, that's an interesting format. You try and you, I mean, it just was crazy, you know? Now think about this. Think about this. I mean, uh, those of us who have, are spoiled by Microsoft Word, I don't know what our children are going to do, you know, if they, they didn't have like that, that format. But it has what? Spell check. It's got all sorts of format stuff. I mean, it does half the work for you, right? But think about this. What if you try to take Microsoft Word and import it into this brother. Okay? First of all, you've got to find a floppy disk, so good luck with that. Okay? But here's the problem. It's going to get in there, and the, and the brother's going to go, what is this? It's not the same software. It's not the same format. It's not the same process. It's not the same platform. <laughs> what are you going to do here? It won't work. So it is with the Old Testament law and the New Covenant, or the Gospel. You try and take the law and, and retrofit it on that, it doesn't work. Because the law, this is the platform it's built upon. Perfect obedience. Or what I call Nike theology, just do it. Just do it. 
And the Apostle Paul making commentary on this, quoting Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5 says this, Moses writes about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. If you're going to live by the law, then you've got to live by the law. And if you mess up, you're, you're toast. The problem with living by the law is no one can do it perfectly. All sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. You are unable to keep the law because it is weakened by the flesh. The best the law can do is show you that you're an offender against God. This is what Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias has said about the law. The law is like a mirror. It tells you your face is dirty, but you don't wipe your face to get it clean. You have to go to a faucet. The gospel, on the other hand, is a completely different platform, a completely different format. It's a faith platform, a faith format, and what God did or what God is going to do as we're at this point of the story. Romans chapter seven, uh, 1, verse 17 says, For the gospel of the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the just will live by faith. More specifically in that same letter, he wrote this. Chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. See, that format doesn't work. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Again, while looking to the Old Testament law, I can show you or lead you to know that you have a need for a Savior it cannot, it cannot be retrofit on the gospel. A gospel that brings a new covenant, a bridegroom, a new wine. They are different platforms. And here's the heart challenge again for these Pharisees back in our story. Let me pick it up again at verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new. For they say the old, the old is better. You know, they say that old wine, I mean, that wine gets better with time. And I'll tell you, I have no idea because I do not like wine. So uh, I'll trust if you're a wine aficionado, that's, that's up to you. But see, the Pharisees had acquired a taste for the wine of the Old Covenant, if you will. It could never bring heart change. It could never be fully, perfectly observed. And it could never fulfill God's righteous standard. But, here's the truth. It was something they were familiar with. Something they could see. They could have tangible results. And sometimes I could compare. Am I doing better than you are? Keeping that law. Right? It was something that could be controlled. And sometimes people use it to control others. At least I know it. That was the wine that these men were imbibing. On the other hand, trusting God 
the gospel, this new wine, this new covenant, seems a little loosey-goosey. Because I can't control it so much. It's not dependent upon me and my ability to keep the law. It's, a, it's dependent upon a Savior who goes to the cross for me and rises from the dead. And when I want to feel proud about how well I'm doing, I'm humbled. Because my actions have nothing to do with how acceptable I am before a holy God. It's only placing my faith in what He did. Because the Scripture says God made Him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. He took upon Himself our right penalty. That we might become the righteousness of God. By putting our faith in Him, God the Father would see the righteousness of the Son, Jesus Christ. But again, I can't control that, right? It humbles me. It humbles me. But here's the good news. Get all these images, right? God has sent His bridegroom. He has sent the king. He has sent, if you will, the new wine. And as we trust in Him, we can have right relationship with the Holy God. See, there's a danger in being good at being good. Because you're starting to believe in your own goodness. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to these people and to us is that the bridegroom has come. The bridegroom has come. The new wine, the new covenant to clothe us in His righteousness. And as a bridegroom, to invite us to forget our old life and put our identity in Him, to be wrapped up in His righteousness. And our appropriate response is to rejoice in that. So as you hear this message, I don't know what your response is. If you've not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to tell you the bridegroom has come for you. He beckons you to put your faith in Him, to put your identity in Him, to let Him clothe you in His righteousness, and to bring you to Himself. The question is, will you say yes? Or will you say stubbornly stuck in your old habits and say, no, I'll, I'll keep my own identity in myself. I encourage you to put your faith in the bridegroom who's come for you. And secondly, for those of us who've been following Jesus for years, be careful. Be careful. It's like your, it's like your marriage relationship if you're married. That can become taken for granted. That can become stale. And you need to continue to rejoice in the bridegroom who has come for you. Remember what it was like when he first came for you. And you put your full identity in him. Return to your first love. Don't let that become stale. And maybe you'll use this Easter week to remind yourself of that.
But the bridegroom has come and he's coming again. And when he does, he will make everything new. It's going to be amazing. What a great thing to rejoice in and to look forward to. And that is the message to you, brother or sister, who has already put your faith in the bridegroom. Let me pray, and then I'll invite the worship team to close us today. Lord Jesus, (laughs) you are an amazing Savior. Indeed, you are the true lover of our souls. And you have come for us as our bridegroom. Would you give us grace to release our stubborn patterns, actually our sinfulness, our pride, to want to save ourselves. We cannot. But you have come to do that in our hearts and our lives. So Lord, I pray that you'll give somebody grace for the first time to put their faith ultimately in you, what you have done on the cross and rising from the dead. And they would find their life in you and following you and knowing you both now and forever. And Jesus, give us grace for those of us who have been following you for years. Sometimes we just get stuck in our routines and we forget. We forget that the bridegroom came to woo us to himself to make us his bride and have life and rejoice in that forever. Would you give us grace to return to you our first love? We are grateful and we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.